Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I am Oliver Thompson. So thanks to all of you that support the podcast via Patreon. It means so much and really helps the podcast grow. If you'd like to support the show for as little as a pound, a dollar or a couple of euros per episode, please visit the link in the show notes. So as you know, I'm taking a break from the Outsider episodes to explore the area of clinical reasoning. And to kick off the series, I'm speaking with Dr. Roger Carey whom I chatted with on episode 35 last year, where we discussed causation in relation to evidence-based healthcare. Roger is an associate professor in the Division of Physiotherapy and Rehabilitation Sciences in the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences at the University of Nottingham in the UK. He specialises in risk and adverse events of manual therapy, neck pain and headaches, as well as clinical reasoning around these areas. He holds a PhD in philosophy with his doctoral dissertation titled Causation and Evidence-Based Medicine. So on this episode we talk about how evidence-based practice offers a backdrop to our clinical reasoning and with the framework now omnipresent across healthcare we talk about how it shapes our thinking, our reasoning and our interaction with patients. We talk about some of the main developments, issues and questions resolved and those unresolved around evidence-based practice. And we talk about what it means to clinically reason within an evidence-based framework. We talk about how evidence-based practice makes us sensitive to the different sorts and weighting of knowledge and evidence. And we discuss the implication of this with our clinical reasoning and the potential conflicts. We talk about whether clinicians think like scientists and whether clinical reasoning is indeed sciencey. And we talk about the similarities and differences between the scientific method and diagnostic reasoning, such as data collection, hypothesis formulation, hypothesis testing, and deductive and inductive reasoning. So it's always an absolute pleasure talking with Roger. His laid-back style defies the intense consideration he has given to the deep philosophical problems of evidence-based practice, which, while as clinicians we may never fully appreciate, nor necessarily require to, they help keep us on our toes and be aware and alive to how complex clinical practice is, which should motivate us to ensure that our thinking and reasoning remain sharp and purposeful. So I bring you Dr. Roger Kerry. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure as always. So you've spoken on the podcast before. We spoke last year and we had a great chat around dispositionalism in the context of EBP, EBM, EBHC. Mm. Are there any others? (laughs) Evidence-informed practice. They probably will. Yeah, we can make we can make a new one up now. (laughs) So that was episode thirty-five, and I'll link that episode in the show notes. But that's a great chat. We kind of touched on some of the some of the elements we might touch on today around induction, deduction. uh, We mentioned even abduction in there in regards to to reasoning, scientific method. But really, today, I think this is is probably going to be the first episode of this clinical reasoning series, which which I'm embarking on. And and I suppose today, just to get a bit of a sense of what sort of kind of backdrop contemporary clinical reasoning takes place in or around, and that's the evidence-based healthcare framework. So before we dive into that, you can give us a whistle-stop tour of who you are and what you're currently doing. Well, I am Roger Carey. I'm a physiotherapist based in Nottingham in the middle of the UK, and been qualified a long time. Started off uh, the usual clinical work, ended up being 
I can't remember what they even called it. It was, I guess it's a precursor to first contact practitioners. I was a clinical specialist in orthopedics, worked a lot in ED departments and it was uh, triage, a lot of triage in orthopedics stuff as well as the regular rehab stuff, which was great. And then I'm employed by the University of Nottingham now, which is where where I am still still going on, teaching, designing programs, clinical stuff, mainly still triaging, but we're trying to set up more and more rehab stuff, really interested in sort of return to running rehab and things like that. So, um, yeah, yeah, sort of plodding on, really. <laughs> Real plodding on, aren't we, really? Yeah. So, so I suppose, I don't think where to start. So, I mean, you know, I don't want to say what is evidence-based practice. That's that's a whole podcast, and it's been done before by us and many others. But I suppose thinking about the focus of the series, which is the kind of cognitive, social, embodied interaction between clinician and patient, which is which, in clinical reasoning, doesn't really capture that, does it? It's quite a cognitive, cognitively kind of loaded idea. But in terms of clinician being with patients. And thinking about having lots of stuff which might inform their, their, that thinking, tell us in brief what evidence-based practice is and perhaps what it isn't. How's that for a starting question? It's a horrible question, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> it really is for so many reasons, what it is and what it is. I mean, we, know, we, we sort of know what it is yeah. and what it isn't. And if we don't, we can go back and read David Sackett's yeah. paper just to, just to get that. But in the context of what we're talking about now, Ollie, you, you know, this relationship with, with the clinical reason, I guess it is, a, you know, call it what we like, a framework of healthcare or a model of healthcare or an approach to healthcare. And with obviously the idea being that, that we utilise systematic research findings within that approach framework or, or whatever, which sounds great, plausible, valid, Easy enough. Easy enough to do. Find something out, apply it. But also, therein lies the problem, or at least as far as as far as I, I I can see. So, I think one of the problems of talking about this stuff is, as you know, because I mean, we, we've talked about it. One of the problems is, it might seem like creating a problem, problematizing evidence based healthcare and clinical reasoning for, for some sort of academic purpose or something, and. and debate the sort of deep philosophies behind that and I'm always I'm always aware of that but I don't I don't I think it is a deep philosophical problem what we talk about but I also think it's a very important shop floor problem and if evidence-based healthcare was doing what it said on the tin in its early days I think we'd, we'd be in a, a different position in the world of health now everybody would be getting better and there'd be less problems and easy, you know, more effective treatments. Maybe that's simplifying it a bit too much, but we've had a good stretch of time of, of doing this stuff and things don't seem to be readily moving in that direction. Of course, there's massive success stories of evidence. And this is the other thing, don't, you know, don't get me wrong, nobody here is dismissing the idea of evidence-based healthcare. Of course, there is no other way to do healthcare. So it comes down again to that same old thing. So evidence-based healthcare is is great. It's the only way to do healthcare. So it comes down to what do we mean by evidence? And then and then how does that relate to to those older Yeah. So it's the only way to do healthcare ethically or effectively. I mean it was obviously done before, but just Yeah, there's always been evidence. Supposedly badly. Well, I don't know. It's it depends what you mean by by badly. It's different types of evidence. There's always been evidence based healthcare. It's just what that is. At one time, the evidence was looking up in the sky and seeing which way the stars were, were forming, and let that inform it. Or a bloke telling you that a, a, a leech is good for this, that, and the other. There's always been a source of evidence. They can't. They can never be not a source of evidence to base something on, unless I I don't know you were born with some sort of innate knowledge of knowing what to do, which is ridiculous. There's always got to be some sort of evidence. It's just it's changed over over the millennia. And the latest iteration is is the evidence is a systematic research, of which there's many types. And and also I guess whether whether we do need these conversations or whether we just say, well, you know, just stop 
stop thinking about it and just just do stuff. You know, if these if the framework says this and the data data of type X says this, whatever that may be, systematic review of high quality randomized controlled trials, national guidelines, international guidelines. If it says that, just do it. Why why are you even thinking about why are you even making this into a problem? Just do it. But I don't I don't think that's the right the right way. Why not? So why is that not the road? That, but that's the problem, isn't it? So you're quite, if a systematic review comes out and says, you know, X intervention is not effective, well, is it as simple as that? That it's a, That's just a, a kind of a, a red light to say, don't no longer do that. I mean, is it as simple as that? And I guess in some cases it might, might be, but often it's not as hmm. clear cut as that. Well, that, that's what I mean. That's very context specific as well, isn't it? Whether, again, we're trying to make some some clear rules about this it's not the right way, it is the right way. But there, of course, there's going to be times when there is some decision or policy that's going to be informed by something and, and that's going to work and that's the, the right way to do it. And it might be, you know, there's consistently through scientific observations, we see that something's not working or something's causing adverse effects that we, we, didn't, we didn't previously know about and you see it time and time again. And uh, and here it is. There's this, this, you know, all the data is heading in the right direction, and, and it's time yeah. to do something about that. Yeah, absolutely. But having said that, I, I don't know how common those those contexts and those situations are. And I think most of the time it is a bit more complex than that because of a number of things. And again, going to try and avoid getting too too deep and try and use words with less than three syllables from now on, but. You know, there's something about the changing nature of the world and the complexity, and there's something about how how that remote information that's been found in 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 a particular study relates to the person in front of you again, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and we can direct listeners to the Core Cell series and other episodes which are around that. Okay, but I've heard you speak about the period, at least in your career, that preceded EBM, this kind of period of clinical freedom. I think. Called it is that what it's called? No, I think it was we were saying before when I trained was that period of you, you know I think literally the the year I started was the was the first guy at paper, and by the time I was graduating, there was a bit more substantial work and the EBM framework was was pretty much developed and, and you know there was tuition throughout that time about about this and mainly mainly lecturers thinking i'm not sure i'm not sure what this is but we've been told to teach you about it so can you think about how you're thinking back then i mean what were people if we had a podcast 25 years ago on clinical reasoning what would that conversation be like around evidence used in decision making or reasoning and knowledge and that kind of stuff well i mean obviously prior to 1992 there were there was still research and an activity in in trying to systematically understand the world but again as you know th- those conversations would have been very much right here's a you know here's a here's a patient let's a, let's have a clinical reason exercise what what you know use your stuff what's the patient telling you what's your ideas your formation and you know mark jones work was developing in in that time as well but even prior to that and again apologies for using the musculoskeletal manual therapy world as examples but but prior to that there were people asking these questions you know jeff jeff maitland james Sirax. they were all clinical reasoners using evidence and their evidence was made have predominantly been their clinical observations prior to that or the the wisdom of experts and uh, you know there's, there's this sort of phase in the 80s and with what David Butler calls a, a cross-fertilization of knowledge when suddenly international conferences became more accessible so people in Australia were suddenly talking to people in North America and the UK and sharing ideas and these experts building up these models of care and this is the way we should do it because I've seen this and there's a good mechanical, biological, plausible reason that we should do this. And if a patient says this and if you feel this, it means this. So there was always a layer of reasoning based on some sort of evidence. Very, very mechanistic based, you know, all those all those old models, even, and, and you know, outside of musculoskeletal as well, neural, neurorehabilitation, BOBAS, and I guess so also in, in respiratory care, there were, there were models of... There were 
evidence-informed models of reasoning that were very mechanistic-based, and the evidence was always very mechanistic or informed by clinical observations and wisdom, and clever people sitting and pondering and working things out. So, so you use that term clinical freedom. I didn't make that up at, at all. It's, it is in, you know, it's, it's used in the literature, and it's, it's supposed to be, it's a characterization of clinicians before 1992 EBM, which is something about the doctor may have a range of options to choose from and he's, he's free in choosing those reins and he largely uses his own experience and the wisdom of others to, to make those opinions. And, and, and the danger may be that, that one of those ranges might be having some crystals placed in your room or something, but you've got the freedom to do that because there's no framework, there's no model to say, hold on a minute, there's some criteria you have to meet first before making that decision. And this is what Guy referred to as the old paradigm in that first paper. And he puts those two two columns up and one is the old paradigm and one is the new paradigm. And the old paradigm is what I've been saying and the new paradigm is saying, scrap all that. We need systematic observations to, to, to inform that and we can de-emphasize the value of some of that other stuff, that mechanistic reasoning, that logical process of thinking, oh, if he says that and I find that, then I should do that. You know, scrap that, essentially. Put all our money on this on systematic observations by which he meant research methods and and and, and again, I know. I know I keep saying this and we've had this conversation before most likely, but I'm being very careful about using research and science not, and not conflating those things because blah, blah, blah. I don't think a lot of the research you do is scientific. Um, so we've got to be careful, careful when we're using those words. But research research findings yeah, yeah. were supposed to, and do, inform clinical practice, which was the, the, new, the new paradigm. And, and what about, I mean, what about all the other, so it, it sounds like that, EBM, EBP, its main kind of messaging at that time was about the nature of evidence or the sorts of knowledge and evidence that clinicians should be leaning on rather than, you know, anecdote about crystals. It was mm. systematic observations from research. But as you know, as well as I, in fact, you know, better than I, um, these other kind of legs of the evidence-based stool, you've got your patient preferences, clinician expertise, to, to what level, if at all, did they also begin to shift clinical practice or was it, it's just the thing that it really was just the evidence which got hooked onto and people were mainly talking about the, the nature of evidence rather than, well, actually let's think deeply about patient values or preferences or expertise. Well, there's a sort of slight, I don't know if it's an irony or a paradox or something or just, just misjudgment. An ironic paradox? An ironic, an ironically Imagine. misjudged paradox. <laughs> Um, the, these three stools or the three circles, you know, best of the evidence, best of your experience, best patient preferences. You know, if you, if and, and again, just being pedantic about this, because you could say, well, don't be pedantic about it. Just take it of what it is. And all those three things have, offer something. But if you look at the, if you look at when that was presented by, by Sackett and the detail of it, and, and um, a guy called Mark Tonelli did a lot of work on this. What did Sackett and the McMaster people actually mean by those three things? It was nicely presented. It said, look, we're not telling you what to do. We're just saying, look, here's some new stuff. And it's the, if you choose the best of this systematic research, and, and, but also bring in your experience and patient preferences, that's how it should work. But actually, that's not what, that's not what they, it said at that time. It said in terms of evidence of therapeutic effectiveness, that's always going to be research evidence but you can use your experience and and communication with the with the patient to to communicate that almost so it's saying you know yeah we need your clinical experience so you can convince the patient mm -hmm. that it's the this is this is what needs to do from from, from the, so they they weren't sources of evidence they were never meant to be sources of evidence they were just just clinical behavioral elements to facilitate the application of, of research findings. So it's not like they, the EBM party were saying in equal measures, use the best of the evidence, the best of your experience and patient preferences to decide. They're saying, no, use systematic research. That's what you're going to do, whatever that tells you, but then use your experience and patient preferences to work out a way of how that's going to be done. And how's that evolved? So that that position where it was 
clearly or perhaps not so clearly, evidence first, use the other things, patient values, your experience and expertise to kind of decide how to, to use that evidence. But ultimately it rests on the systematic research. Is that still the case now? Or is it, I mean, it seems like there's been a, a, a shift or a recentering of the patient to some extent. Well, I, I don't know. It depends. It depends which which bubble you listen to, because we're all we're all in these different bubbles. And I guess there is a narrative that's going along, going everything's becoming more patient centered, and we're we're also we're, we're person centered, and we're balancing those elements out a bit more. And that prioritization of RCTs, for example, and the de-emphasis of clinical experiences, sort of balancing out a bit, and we're getting a bit more thing. And I think there is that narrative going on. But there's also a, 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 there's also the opposite where you know research is getting better in terms of its size and its robustness and its p- power and dominated by very clever, powerful people who sit on the right committees and and guidelines are getting clearer to some extent. So so at the same time, I think I think there's a shift to increase the emphasis on the, the information from those methods and continue to de-emphasize output. And you can see this in, you know, um, computerized ways of decision-making, so some diagnostic al- algorithms and that. Who needs, who needs a human to think when you've got evidence-informed algorithms? Uh, less so on therapeutics, but it's not too far in the future before there's a developing. And so I think there's both of those things going on, but I don't know how it's, I don't know how it's playing out on the shop floor because it's, it's very difficult to, to understand how, how people. Because if the evidence was good enough, like if we could have trials that you know, really capture the complexity of real world practice, then you could see that maybe, <laughs> I mean, you could see why there would be an emphasis of really kind of robust, high quality research evidence, which neatly maps to, you know, people's lives and people's illness situations. But I'm not sure if we're, we're there yet. Well, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, if the evidence was good enough with good enough meaning, it, 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 it was relevant, relevant and applicable to, to, to people. If there was a way of, of doing that now, spoiler alert, I think there is, and we I, hopefully we well, we will come come on to that, but again, apologies for the broken record thing here but but again, as soon as you start studying populations, that gives you good information about what's happening at that population level, and of course it has to be averaged out to get something meaningful from it, and this has been an ongoing challenge in science again for 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 millennia and why should it be evidence-based medicine or evidence-based healthcare that suddenly got the solution to mass to, to deep problems about science like the problem of induction and uh, the ecological fallacy you know we're making assumptions by saying we've studied a population and therefore it'll work for that person we're making assumptions in healthcare that the problem of induction is isn't there but but it is there and it will always be there as soon as you try and take it as soon as you try and let past observations be a guarantee for a future situation that that problem's been going on since ancient greece and People have addressed it, challenged it, tried to work it out. David Hume, Karl Popper, Richard Feynman. Uh, but it's still there. So there's no guarantee that just because we've seen something happen in the past, whether that's clinical experience or a massive multi-centered randomized control trial, that was the past. The, the, the second it was finished is the past. And then you've got your patients out there and... We might learn something from that, but it's it's still no it's still no guarantee that it is the thing to do. The the the, the and I will bring in science now. It's it's no guarantee that it's the the scientifically most robust way to inform your decision making. So, seeing if we're on science, like and you made you you made the distinction this time in our last chat about using the word science and what that really means in in its purest form. But I'm thinking 
maybe just say a word about clinicians as scientists and like whether or not we think in sciencey ways with patients. And there seems like there is some, there is some something which seems similar. Like we collect some data in the form of clinical examination or case history. We kind of have a range of hypotheses, differentials. We test them. We come up. You know that kind of process is science. It looks a bit like science. Is it science? Are we doing science with patients? It looks a lot more like science than a typical research method does. And this is, I guess, if there's any conclusive point about what we're talking about now, is it, it is this. It's, it's the idea that at that level, it's the tightest, most robust form of science we've got. You know, remember the EBM hierarchy at one time had N equal one right at the top, meaning a very specific type of random of randomized control trial done, done on one person over time. Where you and the idea was it, it it was the most robust and it had the most both internal validity and external validity because the only ex- externality to it was that person being studied, and it was internally valid because it controlled everything within that one context. And it was it drifted off from the top because it, it was they were impractical to do. You know you can't do a randomized control trial on every person, except you can because that's what we are that's what we are doing in clinical practice. We are doing the most robust. If we if we do a so like you said, you know all your examples are the ones that I'm nodding away saying yes that's science yes that's science that's science. We we listen we observe we develop hypotheses and we test them through our further questioning and clinical examination. And we do it in, 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 in a specific context with every confounder controlled because there is no other, there are no other samples to average out against. So it's just with the, with, the, with our one person we're doing that. So back to your point, yes, this is something that I think should be promoted more and should be worked on, on more. And it's nothing new because, again, Mark Jones, Joy Higgs and everybody were talking about this in the late 80s and early 90s. You know, the, the clinician is a scientist. Uh, and that's and I guess that's what the clinical reasoning model was was aimed to sort of conceptualise and tighten up a bit. I was going to say, but yes, but I've also seen that line of thinking used by people that kind of don't want to necessarily take on external evidence so they'll just say well every patient's different and i do my you know i go through my kind of sciencey bit with each patient and it all ends up okay i don't need any external evidence or knowledge so you you can see that you know it's quite an internal internal process and there isn't necessarily that externality in terms of reflexivity or reflexivity isn't it's a complete internal process but you know it's it's not an additional process to facilitate one's kind of thinking around their judgments that they're they're making yeah so so you're sort of saying it's it's the danger is that that none of the external evidence is incorporated into that yeah yes or an appreciation of that you might be wrong or that because yeah yeah actually the fact that every patient that you see gets better with the, the intervention that you prefer because they don't come back or they die or whatever it might be. Um, you can see that's a bit of a trap potentially. Yeah, but uh, uh, ab- absolutely. And again, that this is this really sort of fine line between are we, are we a robust, reflective, critical thinking clinical reasoner who's doing sciencey stuff at the shop floor level or are we falling back into that weird anything goes clinical freedom thing? And I think that is a fine line. Kind of just self justification. I mean, you're just purely just you're just justifying it to yourself. Oh yeah, that worked. Oh that's good. Oh that's good. Yeah. There's no. Yeah. yeah. So those extra things are essential for this. But that's what the clinical clinical reasoning models build in. They build. They they should have that dimension of reflexivity and criticality, and saying things like, do, "Are my observations now at the shop floor? Do they match other other types of information that I know about this? Yes or no? And it, and if yes, great. And if no, then it's like, okay. Why why is that? Um, you know, Christine. Price is a really nice example of this. I know, I know. We, mm. as physios at least, keep picking on on uh, on 
um, Chris and uh, live, living well with with pain. But you know her stories. Yeah, and she was on the Cause Health series as well, which I'll link her episode. Of course, yeah. But um, her story is um, interesting, and, and it's it, and it's not at all unique or isolated. It, it's it's the opposite. It's very typical where treatment decisions based purely on the evidence didn't work for her and it took something something else that was still very logical still very rational still would have tied in very well with hill's criteria for causation which, which aren't criteria they're just suggestions of causation but but if you look if you look at those and is it biologically plausible is the temporal element to this you know it still fits with all with all that which is again a, a sort of a basis of, of of medical science if you like and it may conflict with population level yeah science so, so again it's that judgment so so the, the, the you know the therapist who did see Chris, who we actually all, all know because it's Matt Lowe, took an took a, a, an evidence based in approach using using evidence, not not necessarily what what is therapeutically effective here, but evidence from other sources like you know a lot of qualitative work on communication mm. and patients' understanding of their problem and pain, pain beliefs and everything, and integrating all that and work working out something to do with. Uh, that the patient could could work with, which yielded more success in that case, and of course, then a, you know a researcher might come along and say, "Well, you don't know it was a success because you haven't done the stuff we do in trials to to ensure it's it's it was the tr- treatment that caused that and non confinement." But actually, if if that patient was part of a research trial, you know the, that clinician would have followed that patient up over long term and considered other things, and if, if that patient was a part of a research trial. Even though exactly the same follow-ups and measures would be taken, it would have been taken more seriously because it was part of a trial. You're doing the same things at the shop floor, but because it's not part of a trial, it's just your observations. Well, who's observing in the trial? A human, a person. You know, the subjectivity isn't lost; it isn't suddenly wiped away in a, in a research trial. So there are lots of fine lines, and there are lots of pitfalls and dangers. But I think a solid clinical reasoning model should be able to control for a lot of those dangers. But what we do see, as you know, is lots of practice without reflexivity and without criticality and just, just one line of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's worked with me before. So so I'll do it again, but that's not what clinical reasoning is. Do you want to move on to clinical reasoning? We haven't spoken to, we've kind of touched on it, but is there, is there a kind of body of it or a chunk of it that you want to, to tackle? I mean, like, I mean, it, it it is what it is, and for you know, you got some of the key people on your podcast going to be talking a lot more intelligently and fluently about it than me. But you know, my default position is, as I say, that first year I started training was that very first uh, print of the, the manual therapy journal, and and the very first article was was Mark Jones's clinical reasoning pain, and and was sort of read that. Mm. And so, what is what is this? This makes so much sense. Uh, and it was a bit of a contrast to what was being taught, you know, in the physiotherapy course. Or it, at least it was it was a more um, complete picture of perhaps how you should make clinical decisions. And I don't know what Mark will say on your podcast, but I I think that original model is still very valid because because. It incorporates external evidence and it incorporates uh, metacognition and reflexivity and being critical about your decisions and not. And the, there's the patient there too, from memory. I mean, there's a and the patient yeah, yeah. feeds in yeah. into it completely. So in my mind, that's still a that's still a robust model of clinical reasoning. We've uh, we use dif- different with that as a backdrop. There's lots of different clinical reasoning tools all over the place, as you probably know. And, we use one in, in, in Nottingham, which has been informed by Peter Sullivan's thinking and Matt, Matt Lowe's sort of interpretation of, of that and pulled something together, which is just some paper where people can put thoughts on. But, but behind that all is still that sort of Mark Jones-esque process of, yeah. of cognition, metacognition, different types of information informing the decision, being reflective feeding the patient in and, and not not necessarily letting any single source of evidence dominate at any one t- well it does dominate at any one time and that will change but it's it's again being cognizant of, of that so 
Yeah, I mean, for, for me, that is what clinical reasoning is. And you know, I think in terms of teaching, education, when we're teaching clinical reasoning, and again, I don't know if we're going overkill and overboard on this, but what we do a lot with our postgrads on our master's programs, for example, is we look at those clinical reasoning models, but then look what's even behind them and look at sort of types of logic and fallacies and, and where you could go wrong and things, which in my mind adds another safety net almost uh, because you know sort of what you're dealing with from a rational reasoning logic point of view and you, and you might be self-aware of some errors in reasoning you're making even though you're working within a, the reasoning model. So uh, continually trying to deepen it. And as I said, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing or... I mean, do you think, thinking back to your clinical freedom days, I mean... Is it now, are we now paralyzed by these, by these kind of models and thinking so deeply being so reflexive, it, it, it seems more arduous than, I mean, rightly so, it should be arduous to some extent, but it just seems, it all seems quite difficult. <laughs> it all seems quite difficult. And you, for students, you can imagine just thinking, hang on a minute. So there's models behind models. I've got to be, you know, not just self-reflective, but thinking about how my own interaction might influence the clinical situation. I've got to think about, I mean, and of course, this is just the nature of contemporary practice, but it's kind of not easy, is it? I mean, it's not, there's lots of things to, to juggle, which which is just not, the, it's not just the scientific method, for example. It's not just oh, go do some reflexes and some myotomes and mm. ask the patient about their symptoms mm. and then out the output is the diagnosis and then there's a treatment so even when we talked about the sci- the sciencey part of clinical practice or clinical reasoning, that doesn't that kind of underplays the complexity to some extent or a large extent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think sort of alluded to this right, right at the start. And you know, it would it would be great if something worked like the evidence based model. And it made life easier for everybody, the patients, the clinicians, because the cognitive burden of thinking like this is, is massive. I mean, you can't, nobody can possibly clinically reason with every patient all day and every day. Some of that becomes automated and, you know, pe- pedagogically, the, the, there are sort of ways to try and improve your clinical reasoning process. But, but it's one of those ways is certainly not to think this hard all the time because you can't, you'd be, you'd be exhausted. And it is a shame because it would wouldn't it be great if there if there was an easier way that was that really did work and it was really easy, and again in terms of AI and robotics we are probably moving a lot towards taking some of that burdensome off. But as far as I can see, I still think there's a long future where there's going to be humans involved in this. And, it, and and they are involved because it's so complex that AI can't quite chunk it all up yet. Which means there's always going to be that that hardship and that cognitive burden to clinical practice, it, at least in a lot of cases. You know, there are some some types of people we see where everything's fairly straightforward and it's easy and that's fine. But a lot of, you know, long-term health and, you know, complex comorbidity stuff is just going to get worse and worse. So we are going to have to live with complexity and cognitive burdensomeness in clinical practice it's a it's a way of streamlining that as best as as best as we can any top tips for for those you know because i guess i'm thinking that you could resist this complexity as a clinician you could be like yeah i'm just not going to listen to that podcast or pick up that book or so i mean we may never get we may never access those individuals that intentionally kind of switch off but i suppose those that you know, are, feel some sort of duty to engage with this, with the complexity and the difficulties of clinical practice and all its kind of glory. Like what would, but f- struggle with it. What do you say to your students, for example, when they just say, this is just, this is difficult. <laughs> what, 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 do, what should people do to overcome that burden? Yeah, no, I think, and they, and they do say that. Why, why do you, I, there, I, there was that, um, blog or whatever I did some years ago, wasn't it? Where a guy actually said to us one day, you know, I, I don't get paid enough to think this, this hard, which (laughs) I think was a very valid comment. And I could say exactly what he was doing. You know, if you think of other people who think this hard, surgeons, astronauts, lawyers, 
and look yeah. at what they get paid, you can see you can see yeah. that point. And I think that is a valid argument to say, hold on a minute, why should we have to do this? So, so there's, there's there's some assumption that there's a sort of sort of ethical moral obligation to do what we're doing as well as a sort of financial reward for it because we've chosen to 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 help people who who, who need help. Um, top tips, um, I, you know, engage with the, the narratives on this and try and find a, a, a working pattern that allows you to integrate some of some of this evidence-informed reasoning and, and, and look for mentorship and, and look for for additional support and don't don't get sort of carried away you, you know the other good thing about the evidence-based healthcare movement is it was well it's potentially a good thing it was a move away from from guru-led treatment you know as what he said Maitland and Syriacs and Bobath but we've we've got more gurus now than we ever had just in different forms and it's it I can see how easy it is for people to get attracted to to that still and although some of that guruism may well be better informed than it was or, or differently informed than it was the day before it's still not the way to go about practice you know you need to be your own guru again you know trying to find as least cognitively burdensome ways as possible to stay reflective and critical and and, and embrace as much as you can and realizing that you know we haven't got to all be perfect all the time, and and you can't be. And and at the end of the day, just listening to somebody's life experience and and letting them tell you what they want is clinical reasoning. But there's no trial in the world that's going to really, really pick up on that level mm -hmm. of of human interaction. It's a bloody good start, isn't it? Just to like you said, just to just to listen to someone and spend that time really listening rather than thinking at the back of your mind, got to get onto the examination or got to get yeah, this intervention. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, if I ruled the world, there'd be a lot, a lot of changes with that. What's all that about? Subjective, objective, do this, don't do that business. You know, we're humans and the people we serve humans. But that's a hangover from science, isn't it? Like there's period of data collection sit down, extract the info from the patient. Where does it hurt? What are your symptoms? Pretty close questioning. You pop it, even though, even though, I don't know how you have it in Nottingham, but in osteo, you go out the room, sit with the tutor, come up with a range of differentials, hypotheses. The tutor says, right, how are you going to test these? Go in the room, like a you know, bit of a sciencey thing, do some experiments come out of the room tutor says what, what was your outcome oh it's this and so it's compartmentalized from training right it's very separate you know it's separated mm. out but the you know the sciencey stuff can be can be taking place in in our minds in and out the rooms out, out outside but uh, perhaps we need to get better in being a you know a human and a scientist at the same time you know, front front of house is mm. is our human person person centered persona out the room and in our, the back of our minds is our the, the scientific process that's happening as you're listening to that patient and you're generating you think you know Ian Edwards early work on that narrative reasoning was brilliant was yeah out, outstanding and uh, I invite him on the series he's retired unfortunately. Uh, his he yeah so his remember his his strategies they were mm. kind of seven clinical reasoning strategies where he I suppose breakdowns the breakdown sounds reductionist but begins to unpack the the process of clinical reasoning from procedural to teaching diagnostic narrative reasoning it's brilliant yeah yeah and yeah I think it's time to revisit some of that stuff thirty odd thirty years on or whatever we are say right look we've given all this a go now. It's all generally going in the right direction, perhaps not doing as great as we thought it might be. Let's bring, you go, again, it's my characterization, I guess, of, of juxtaposing clinical reasoning against evidence-based practice. But that's that's the academic bit that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. I don't really go there. But that's just to force force some conversations and force some issues about this. But really, of course, they they sit together, but it, it's still, we haven't got the answers to how they they're fluently sit together mm. 
but we're getting there, I guess. But people, presumably, people are. I mean, people are making them. Sit, people are doing both clinical reasoning, and they're both doing EBM. So, so something's happening. I mean, they're either doing both badly, or they've managed to come <laughs> up with an innovative yeah, way yeah. to merge the two. Again, I sort of have to force myself to to um, accept that because that that is great. You know, the fact that somebody <laughs> is is doing the reasoning stuff, the working, listening to the patient, working stuff out, and integrating the the evidence is is great. But again, we, without getting overly geeky, the layer below that is. So, what do you mean by integrating the evidence? So you're so you're saying you're bringing in that those outcomes from that systematic review to that patient. Well you know how how is that so you either do it's it's not integration it's one it's a binary thing you're either making a decision based on the evidence or you're making a decision based on some something else so which which is it you which is it you, you're doing and if you if you look at you know if you look at people in practice and you slow that down and have those conversations it always comes down to uh it, <laughs> nobody really knows how they're doing it and it's just done at a superficial level and it doesn't actually mean anything sort of logically or sort of philosophically what they're doing it's just but isn't that a failure of language that it's tacit and they just can't they just, it's just it's just going to happen or it just and they can't communicate those those linkages between the evidence and the person for example yeah yeah maybe and, and maybe we need need a bit more scaffolding on that but again, I know this sounds super reductionist, but at the end of the day, if if there's if you're going to to have a therapeutic intervention, you know, with with, with a patient, let's say somebody's got knee pain, there's something that eventually has to be done, and a decision has to be made. And let's say it's exercise, whatever. What's in what's inform form that it's it's it may be it's it's it, this is what I mean. It's a binary thing. It's either got to be. I know. I know it can sound like. Well, you know, it sounds like they should be doing some exercise because they've lost, they've lost some muscle strength and need to get going back. And also, this these guidelines also recommend exercise. So, so and they like exercise. And they like exercise. So, and in the past, exercise seemed to have helped the other two hundred patients with knee pain in your yeah, career. Yeah. So that's that's all that's all tying in, and that's nice, but. But then what if there's some sort of conflict there? We there's got to be a binary way of valuing one piece of that evidence more than the other. And then what does that mean in your sort of integration of evidence? It, it, trying to get to the nub, like the kind of ground zero of where that conflict, you know, breaking it right down, as you said, it sounded reductionist. So how do we ever access that? Do you see the problem with pursuing that? Like, well, what, what at, the, at that particular point... What went on? How did the evidence trump the the experience? For example, I, you know these are such intuitive, context sensitive processes taking place. So again, I think you're right. It's you either, I mean, I'm guessing the vast majority of people don't worry about this in the way I do, which is absolutely fine. Um, maybe you should just carry on like that because that is how world works you know like you said your your example there that that's just how how the world works and i'm i'm thinking hold on a minute the ontological basis for that is now all completely shattered because you can't you can't say that you see there's got to be something that you're pinning your you know you're pinning your flag to and that's that's what you're using to make that decision so if that's the case, mm. what is it, and what what is that ontological basis for that? Because if you're yeah. saying it's the the population level stuff, you can't do that because of the problem of induction. And if you're saying it's just your experience, you can't do that. So, so there's that deeper level that that you know some people like me worry about. But at least what's happening is we we're now getting a workforce where at least there is some yeah. something going on which does look quite different to the to the 1980s and such forth which is great but at the same time we've got a world where the global burden of musculoskeletal disease is increasing and you know there's still work, work to be done and last question do you think it looks different now i mean i get that conceptually we're thinking differently and i know that there's probably i mean i guess it thinking about msk you know there's no kind of you know, spinal bracing for 
back pain or maybe there's less ultrasound going on, those kind of things. But is your sense that clinical practice has changed, aside from maybe just the interventions which should be used, which, which to me seems like it might be a clearer thing to observe, but just the interaction between people and patients and clinicians, do you get a sense that, that there has been some shift uh, besides just conceptual shifting and curriculum shifting and you and I having a podcast about this and not about rotator cuff you know, tendinopathies, for example? Yeah, yeah, I think there has been, but it's not it, it's not been massive. I think there's been some shedding off of some stuff and polishing up of a few other stuff. But, you know, when we go around looking at uh, you know, students on clinical placement and stuff and you're just seeing and listening and watching people do this stuff, that could be from the 1970s, 1980s. Uh, which sounds which sounds a bit harsh, but I guess the core of what we something about the core of it will will remain the same. But then you get this bit about oh, I've I've read some evidence that says we should we should listen more. So I'm just going to listen for two minutes now. So carry on while I'm listening. Yes, you carry on because I'm listening. And there's so there's a superficial sort of attempt to change practice in at, at that shop floor level, uh, I guess. But I don't know. By and large, things look pretty much the same. I think on that positive note, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe just observing clinical practice it is in itself is not crude, but maybe there is some subtle, maybe there is some subtle interactional differences. There's changes in empathy, for example. And like you said, the listening, I, I get maybe the communication might be the same. Students are still saying it's your L5 that's slipped or whatever kind of the, the slightly dated language might be. But Maybe, and I don't know this, but maybe there is a shift in terms of the nature of the relationship. There's a focus on the individual as well as the evidence, perhaps, which is to some extent outside of, it's hard to, to view, if you like. It's a situational. Yeah, it always has been. It always will be. But that that would be a nice thing to do, that we got a better understanding of of those changes. I'm sure there is. I'm sure I'm giving everything a bit of a hard press, but change is always slow, but. We do, we do need to try and ramp that up a bit. Roger, thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Ali. It's, a, as always, a huge pleasure and a huge honour to be part of this. And I can't wait to, to hear what your other guests have got to say. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.